0: Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Raman. On the podcast today, we have Trisha Holmes. Welcome, Trisha. Hi, Ben. Awesome to have you.
1: Thanks for having me. You
0: bet. Before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Comox, Klamen, Homoko, and Klehus First Nations, who were one borderless traveling group of folks that uh didn't settle in any one part of the land because it was all one land i'm grateful to be able to uh, produce this podcast on primarily the unceded lands of the Klamen people but we've got little little patches of the other three first nations scattered throughout the island so i like everybody to be included so, today, we're going to be talking about some cool stuff. Crochet is uh, a BCBA, like many of the folks I've had on the podcast, but like some folks I've had recently, she also has some other rules and kind of combines them all, so we're going to talk about that. And, and I just love when folks are using their BCBA for, for things beyond the usual. And I think it inspires others to sort of incorporate their passions, um, um, you know, into their, uh, behavior analytic practice. So I'm looking forward to digging into that. Uh, before we do, maybe Trisha, just tell us a little, about, a little bit about
2: yourself.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks again for having me. Um, so I've been in BCBA for a while, uh, since, well, now it feels like a while. I think <laughs> I still feel so young all the time, a kind of noob, um, since just since 2014, so not a while. Um, I'm am a
0: 2014 or two, and it feels like <laughs> a long time to me.
1: Right, um, and you know, just been in the field for about 14 years, um, as a clinical supervisor, and then you know was whatever an RBT was before that, and mm. so I've kind of had that similar journey that a lot of people have had. You know, you start out as as a you know practitioner you know in the field and all the passion and fervor and then yeah you get your license and credentialing and then you start working for agencies and then you start seeing that um it's it's not always exactly what you thought it was gonna be when you Hmm. started with that passion and fervor and um, but I've had a lot of really rich experiences and I've learned a lot uh, over the years and um so I'm a BCBA, but before that, I'm, you know, a, a mom and a daughter and a sister and, hmm. and a friend and all those other things. And I think what I've learned most in this time is how to balance wearing all of those hats simultaneously. And, hmm. um, and so, um, I, I currently have my own agency, uh, called affirmative parenting solutions. That is a super tiny solo practice that's still figuring it out um, Mm -hmm. out here in Texas. And um, I'm also just still super small solo momming trying to figure that out. Uh, I have two kiddos, one about to be nine and one about to be seven. One of them diagnosed with autism um, as well as me. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so, um, I've been able to use my life experiences and professional experiences to kind of guide my practice and my, my passions for the field as they, as they are currently, which is, uh, for, uh, prioritizing parent training and prioritizing compassionate care and really making sure that I hold to my values for, um, person-centered care, but, not just the one person, <laughs> mm. um, which is the client, the but also including the persons that help the client get into here and be birthed into the world. And so um, that's kind of how we got here today with you, Ben, just um, combining my passion for parenting, uh, motherhood, but parenthood altogether, not just uh, singling out mothers, and then this ABA practice that we do. And so I Um, In 2021, I got certified as a doula and started working towards perinatal mental health certifications and still working on that. Um, And just really start looking into supporting families in multiple ways.
0: Right on. Where'd you go to school?
1: I went to school at Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas.
2: Mm, Denton. Nice.
1: Yes, and I actually went to school for exercise science or kinesiology, so okay. I had a really uh, interesting path into this field. Started as a ambitious, you know, freshman going in to be a physical therapist because I worked in adapted, I worked as a in a partner PE program in high school and loved it. it changed mm. my whole life met some kiddos with some severe physical and intellectual disabilities and got to do physical education with them as a high schooler and a reverse mainstreaming model. And I loved it so much that I was no longer going to be a med school student. And it didn't Mm. make no sense to change that. That had been what I was going to do the whole time. I was a very uh, rigid (laughs) type student, like Mm top of the class. So I, I, this is my plan. I stick with it. And then, you know, that was probably the first example of me just kind of trusting the path that I was being led on at mm. any moment. And so I met some wonderful uh, students there. And then I switched my path thinking I was going to be a physical therapist and work with that population, maybe in the schools or um, outpatient or in clinics. And so uh, that's what I went to TWU for. Mm. And then day one, I started telling them more about what I love to do. And they walked me down to my advisor's office. And her name is Dr. Lisa Silliman French. I told her I was going to be on this podcast. So I just wanted to shout her out. She's now retired and just made such an impact. Um, Mm. And did my um, bachelor's and master's in adaptive physical education,
2: Mm.
1: which at the time was, we were fighting to get. Adapted physical education recognized and, and utilized in the schools, and it's since grown tremendously. And um, so that's what I was getting my I got my bachelor's and master's in that as uh, with the cognitive and special education. I'm a certified uh, teacher for a physical education and special education here in Texas, oh. and uh, certified in adapted PE. So uh, I went to grad school again for a PhD program at the University of Utah under special physical physical education as well. And then I gave birth to my son and, and I've been writing the dissertation ever since, mm. <laughs> which means I have not finished a PhD program. Um, So um, that's been on hold and I'm a-okay with that. I've just been writing the dissertation of life since and will maybe one day return to a doctoral program in some capacity.
0: Yeah, no rush. Yeah. I never even heard of, I've heard of adaptive, adapted sports and things like that. And I've heard like, I know there's, well, you know, every summer down my way, there's like an adapted surf, adapted surfing crew and there's some adaptive hikers. And you hear a little bit about, you know, some of the funky um, kind of hiking wheelchair equipment you can get. And, and uh, but I didn't realize that there was a whole, you know, field
1: yeah it's educational service so um you know everyone has the right to appropriate physical education just like math science reading so um it's within the school district under IDEA covered there but then adaptive sports is an is a whole other thing and that's which is an amazing amazing field and um just making sure that you're making all the the things in life uh, accessible to all uh sports canoeing basketball, rugby, uh, anything, tennis, should be accessible to every single human being. Um, So yeah, that's kind of how I got into uh, behavior analysis was just during the program, we had behavior management sections and I was very, very interested and did some research and and kind of took off down the path of simultaneously getting my coursework done through the University of North Texas uh, while I was working on my master's at Texas Women's University, so.
2: Wow.
0: So, I wanna know more about this adaptive physical education stuff. So, it, are, are, there, are there are there a lot of programs in this area? Like, I've, I've never heard of this.
1: Yeah, there really are. Um, I know Ball State has one, Ohio State mm. University, Texas Women's University, wow. um, puts out a lot of students. Uh, the university of utah definitely has a program as well uh, there are there are states everywhere uh, let's see university of wisconsin wow so there's just a lot of different programs i think people should really look into it because um it's a just it's under special education um, and yeah. and you know so bcbas have probably worked with an adaptive physical education teacher at some point in their careers, mm-hmm. uh, maybe as part of the IEP team. Um, so that's kind of where I got my background and that and my uh, my certification in special education and goal writing and things like that, but on the school district side. Um, and so it's definitely necessary. And I think uh, my philosophy mm-hmm. is that physical activity is like food and water, right? Um, especially for kiddos who who need it it's they're hungry usually for it so uh, just having some skills and tools and strategies for feeding that need uh is has been super impactful to me practicing as a bcba and uh, i know there are some other bcbas out there who are that's their specialty area is using um, physical activity as part of their practice and i'm so happy to see it and hear it and um and know that that is being spread out because I trust me if people have been scratching their heads with me for a long time like how'd you go from physical education to applied behavior analysis and how do you marry the two of those and Mm -hmm. it's just kind of like my my thing I guess is finding all the different ways to to include other areas into the science because it's not really in other areas we're all human it's all human needs so um, physical activity is no different than the sensory needs or the um, language and communication needs that each of us have as humans. So um, making sure that we are, we have some, some skills and experience on being able to help provide that in our practice is really important.
0: So folks that get those degrees, are they primarily teachers or?
1: Yeah. So the degree is the, what we call it, the coach's degree. The ones that I have hmm. is kinesiology. So if I wanted to, I could just go retired to teaching elementary physical education and coaching a a middle school basketball team you know um if i wanted to which actually sounds grand sometimes (laughs) um but uh they're usually teachers in um, school districts or you go into higher education um and you know working as a professor run programs for like adaptive sports programs
2: Mm. Um,
1: as well, for the community. Special Olympics coaches are usually five degrees in this area.
0: It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Neat. And,
1: yes, and the most amazing people you could ever meet and know. Ever. And I just, I kind of miss sometimes going to the to the physical education conferences and I always laugh about how it's just a bunch of grown-ups playing around, walking around. It, it just used to be, uh, I all I can hear is the sh- like our swishy pants, like our track suits and swishy pants, pants, just, pants. just awesome. swishing, swishing past each other and just laughing. <laughs> and then I mean the conference meetings were one of my favorite ones is, was like us taking yoga balls and using them as drums, right? And it was there was a whole the whole session on that. And we'd yeah. have yoga sessions at a conference. So you're traveling and no one's in a suit, you know, <laughs> or you know, presenting a long PowerPoint. We're all moving. And so that's just some of the, the funnest conferences to go through to ever. And if I could just, I want to just marry them all, you know, just bring them all together. So you, you know, there's not, it, it doesn't feel, I'm not, not, not talking about on the ABA conferences, but it, yeah. it feels relaxed um not stiff or meritocratist, you know, like not performative, just enjoy learn,
2: have
0: fun. I think you got to propose to BABA that they include a little adapted phys ed little portion.
1: That would actually be really great. And I think they're, yeah, for a couple of, especially the BCBAs that are, have that as a special interest. I think that would be fantastic.
0: Totally. You know, are there, are there I've had a little experience, you know, working in high schools and working in gyms with kids and stuff. And I'm i have never been a phys ed guy myself. I hated gym when I was a kid, and <laughs> I was I was always the guy in the corner trying to avoid the team sports. And oh, finally cross country, yeah, where I can avoid people just by walking instead of running, you know, that sort of thing. I was mm-hmm. it was it wasn't much of a <clears> or <throat> I probably could have used some of this stuff. Uh, and and what, so when I'm working when I was working in in you know with some of these kids in the gyms and whatever, you know often the teachers would, you know they try to be inclusive and in, you know but it that tended to be either by putting these kids in sort of the you know the the equipment person role or the you know the ball the ball boy role or you know sort of these um you know which you know and for some kids that might be a blast for sure and and maybe a a great way to do it but you know when you have a class with you know seven eight or nine kids that have special needs they can't all grab the ball or all be the equipment person and so then they end up being it's basketball and the kid just sits in the corner and bounces a ball while everyone else plays or whatever. And, you know, it was a struggle. And I, I I tried to my best to sort of be creative and come up with things. But being not much of an athlete myself, I didn't really have a lot of ideas. Are there because I think I know there's folks listening that it may be are, you know, RBTs or whatever. And, you know, they probably work in school settings. Then you're probably get stuck with this job of sort of supporting that kid in, in the phys ed class. Uh, when there isn't maybe an adaptive program available are there are there like cool resources or whatever available for sort of paraprofessionals and whatnot if they want to kind of try and you know maybe make the basketball game a little more inclusive or whatnot
1: yes there, uh, there's always you know some some resources out there I know my sister told me recently her kids keep telling her search it up mommy right so if we search it up <laughs> uh <laughs> you're gonna find if you just search up adaptive pe resources or NASPE mm. or um uh, now i have to to remember all the different acronyms um, so good out there um i can link some to you so that you can yeah them perfect and, uh, and then those and just uh even for practitioners uh there's i have books uh where there's behavior management and adaptive physical in physical education um the Hester Henderson and Ron French who I worked with that's their research area mm. uh, is is behavior management and physical education because the gym setting or even outside on the track or on a big football field whatever it is for that setting is extremely overwhelming for even individuals without any uh, diagnoses or who aren't struggling in any areas for sure. so and it's typically a double-sized class um, mm. so uh, I will link some to you so that you can share and then, yes, it's, and even some, hopefully some cheat sheets uh, so that practitioners, behavior and analytic practitioners can know, and then even try to work with adaptive physical educators, if you ask them, so many are so willing to share. Um, I had one recently who was, I guess because of COVID had created a whole online portal for his class and wow, um, we had to bring the student back to home for the summer it was like she already knew all his his coursework all the things she was supposed to be working on at home because so he'd been doing a, a mix like using technology and so again I think adaptive physical educators just some of the just the best most helpful kind and most encouraging people in the world and um it's like those good coaches you see on tv plus able to work with any kind of student and yeah um, so I will get you those resources, and anybody who ever needs them, I'll, I'll um, send them their way. And I have a, a really, really sweet cohort of, of, and community of, mm-hmm. of, of APE teachers that would love to share this knowledge. Um, I'm so removed that I just use my knowledge as much as I can. Um, with each individual client as i'm working in their schools and things like that but yeah we've got people this is their everyday life and so good managing equipment and just amazing people yes
0: well you have to connect me with some of those folks maybe i could bring them on and have a more detailed conversation about this that's awesome so you did your master's in this did was it a thesis program or what was was there a big project what was what was that about
1: it was a grant program, and there was a big exam at the end, so certifying as a certified adaptive physical education uh, teacher was the the end of the program at mm. that time, um, and then it was a one-year grant, too, so a very, very intense wow. um, year, um, lots of practical experiences, and then student, get to do student teaching and all that beforehand. I did for my um physical education degree and license uh so that's that's what that was we had yeah. a lot of uh, grant projects that we had to work on gotcha i did do some poster presentations and all that during that time hmm. um literature literature reviews and all
2: that yeah yeah
0: and so i mean it's probably a silly question but are you uh a pretty athletic person yourself.
1: I would say I'm. Um, I can get into shape pretty quickly uh, when I need to. <laughs> I would say I'm. I'm athletic. I I ran track and cross country. Right. Uh, growing up, but as far as coordination goes, sometimes I, I, I struggle. I think my bilateral coordination is just kind of off. But of where so I find success in individuals. Uh, sport activities so cross country track yeah i like to do indoor rock climbing that's kind of my thing um, now it's like a puzzle with my body like i can you know challenge right ways. you study the study the board you put together pieces um so playing team sports like soccer and basketball are ways more dynamic than my brain can manage um which made the that degree, even though some people consider that a very easy degree, more difficult for me because mm. I can take a paper test anytime, but we had to do skills, skills tests. Mm. Um, so you have to demonstrate the ability to use the skills and that would be so nervous ahead of those skills tests or softball, tennis, badminton, gymnastics, th- dance. <laughs> um, you have to show soccer, wheelchair sports all of them mm. uh, those are my favorite ones but yeah. it, uh, it was it was kind of hard for me if you're not well coordinated and of course everyone else around you are super athletes and so I don't want to talk myself down because I think I'm pretty vis- pretty fit for my old age um, <laughs> I can I can move around pretty freely and I you know I find a lot of my fitness through play Um what I call play, I'm still willing to get in there at the trampoline park with my kids and confuse the whole place. They don't know if I'm a mom, the sister, the auntie or the cousin, but as I'm over there jumping around with children. um, And I'm also just willing to just play, be active uh, with my clients, (laughs) like piggyback rides, all the things. Um, And then of course I go to the gym when I can, but right now my things have been climbing and what I call functional fitness through play.
0: Lifting children,
1: yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on and the, the the coordination issues, I often hear about autistic folks having kind of coordination issues. sometimes they even have like diagnosable like there's like there's a developmental is there a developmental there's a coordination disorder. I don't know if it's developmental is the word, but um that seems to be kind of associated with. Autism. Sometimes, do you think this is sort of uh, a separate thing, or do you think it's part of being autistic? Any well, thoughts on you that? You
1: know, I'm. I've tried. I've thought about this. Yes, I have thoughts. Uh, <laughs> but you know, um, as, as I talked about before, and having this diagnosis, it you know answered a lot of questions. You know, for yeah. Um, maybe for coordination, maybe. And um, my. I have my family is half and half athletic, you know. So it could just be we some of us are super coordinated, some of us are not. I know that sure. I'm athletic in other in many ways. I'm pretty yeah. like physically active, but I can't dance, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I can't catch the rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh and so things like that. I've I try not to just attribute everything to autism diagnosis, but it, yeah. it does. Um help explain a lot of things. For example, the interoception, like my ability to feel hunger and thirst um, as others might, you know, um, seem to be, you know, it's been my whole life. I'm I'm not super hungry when I think I should be. Mm. (laughs) Or, you know, even having to use the bathroom, like I, I could sit here and work all day and then, and not until I get up, do I, am I like, whoa, (laughs) <laughs> I have a full bladder you know i should probably have used the bathroom a long time ago yeah yeah, um, yeah gravity has to really be pulling on me or i get a headache as and that's my cue that i should have eaten or drank my water or wow anything. so i have to schedule my meals and drinks and things and do it do so behaviorally like and and very systematically i use a habit tracker and uh write everything down and all these things because my body isn't cueing me as others might. And so, hmm. you know, it's like always a question because I'm really thin. It's like, well, how are you eating? Well, yeah, as much as I can, you know. And um, but I'm not getting the oh, I must. There's no big drive for me to get up and go and um get food at this time, besides the knowledge that it is necessary. Uh I must do it to function well. Right. Yeah. Um so things like that have and it's kind of been a relief to know that it's not just me. Um it's not just me being a lazy eater or something like that, you know, Um, or all the self judgments that I've probably made um, over the years. Mm -hmm. Other things just, uh, a lot of other things just tend to make sense. So uh, I was also diagnosed recently with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is Uh. pretty, um, I guess it's pretty common for uh, neurodivergent individuals. I've heard that. So it's just, uh, so far, as far as I know, uh, without, uh, extensive genetic testing, which is that it's just the hypermobile type, which just means that my, um, connective tissue is not holding everything together as it, as it should. And so therefore my joints are just pretty, uh, hypermobile, very flexible, um, which as a kid growing up was just like, Look what I could do, you know. I put my leg behind my head and the thing, right. um. And it's not a, it's not disordered, of course, and unless it's bothering you, right? So there are a lot of very flexible people who have very uh, loose connective tissue and collagen. Um, they work as contortionists, you know. Um, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: However, at this point, that physical activity you're talking about. I would do something that i've been doing for years and i'm i feel like a 97 year old <laughs> the next wow. day, so, which is what prompted the reaching out plus um and so there's so many things under illustrated on those that are pretty typical um which can that some of that coordination stuff can be included but how flexible i've been i've always been really good at yoga yeah um and also uh i it comes with like a potentially, uh, like a fainting disorder. It's called POTS. Um, yes, I've it's heard kind of a this. Yeah. Of position. <laughs> uh, not too quickly, but just um, just a change of position it caused like a heart rate increase and then, you know, sometimes potentially fainting. Um, so I just always just thought I was just this, you know, quirky little kid that, you know, can't stand up too fast or do burpees, you know, and uh mm. so uncoordinated. And so it's sometimes it's not necessary to have these labels, diagnoses or whatever, but it can be a relief or helpful because I think I was, one of the things the specialist said, the either channel specialist at UT Southwestern out here said was, honey, you gotta be coming to yourself. There's, you know, you, your textbook ED, EDS and even symptoms of anxiety and depression are t- typical of this um because you just don't know what's going on like why am I feeling like this you know when you're feeling fatigued and all these things mm. and your heart is beating in your throat right um you think it's just anxiety everyone tells you it's all in your mind but you're, that's just how your body works so such a relief mm. to, to know sometimes that kind of like we look at functions of behavior that there are so many more functions than we that we cannot see there underneath the surface and make a lot of judgment calls based off of only what we can see right or what others tell us and so just remembering to it's okay to look a little deeper sometimes and and even again though it's not necessary it hasn't changed too much about how i live um it's nice to know that i can give my cut myself some slack sometimes
2: yeah
0: sorry can you tell me a little more about the, the the plots thing Cause
1: I've heard yeah. of that too. It's called, it's post, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Wow. Um, so it really just means that when you change posture, maybe from lane to standing, hmm. standing to laying, your heart goes into tachycardia and it just can like, like, uh, be pumping a lot of blood in really fast, um, and can make you feel faint, weak, all those things. I'm super anxious in that moment in general the intervention for it is to what i was told at least was to increase electrolytes and water consumption um right. in general just drink way more water than i think i'm supposed to be drinking and so that part again since i told you i don't always just feel like right you not thirsty, thirsty. Until, right yeah. until my mouth is like <laughs> super dry like yeah. hot mouth or yeah 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 you know, i have a headache so, um, and you know what, that's been helping a ton. So drinking, um, liquid IV, or hi- extra hydration solutions and lots of water has been the most effective bracing myself when I know I've had to change positions. So, um, getting out of a sit- low sitting car or low sitting position to standing, mm. um, and just basically lifestyle changes there. But, um, so you can, you might hear that some people have like, a what is it called? Um, Basically, your orthostatic hypotension, your blood vessels the uh, dilate, and you know, if you, your blood pressure might drop, and then you, you, you know, people faint or feel yeah. lightheaded. Um, and this is just a little different, it's just uh, but in, in the in the same category of things. Um, so you still want to make sure you drink a lot of water for that. And um, I think I I joined a autism support group here in DFW area, and the the leader of that support group is, you know, the reason what got me on this journey of like, even like looking into Ehlers-Danlos was he was talking about it. And, you know, I'm looking at him sitting in all kinds of weird awkward positions and I'm doing the same. And, you know, so many more people in the room also have the same thing. And Mm. I'm just like, whoa. So there's just, it seems to be, even when you look at the research, a lot of overlap between neurodivergence and um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And there are a lot of different types. So yeah. right now, I think I'm just impacted by the hypermobile type, yeah. which.
0: Yeah. No, I've it's seen so folks are like wear braces all the time, neck braces, different things like that, and and you know it's a lot seems a lot more debilitating for some folks.
1: Yeah. I, I did not know much about this at all. Like this is very new for me, and and so it actually surprised me because I work, we work with neurodivergent individuals, and <laughs> so you know whenever I'm missing some information I'm always like oh, I have to go down this <laughs> this path and understand more about it because this is impacting the people that I work with I'm sure or, you know um and yeah. it's been impacting me and I didn't even know it and I'm sitting here being so mean to myself about things yeah. and it was unnecessary
0: it's something I think about a lot when i when, when, when we're talking about reform in our in aba and that sort of thing and there's lots of different directions you can go with the reform conversation but i've got a lot of them but uh one thing that i i do think about a lot is things like the coordination issues the eds the pots there's some other ones that seem to be you know highly correlated with with autism diagnoses and yet certain i've certainly never had conversations about these topics in in any of my coursework in any of my continuing education uh you know and 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 so when i'm thinking about folks that maybe maybe can't don't don't have you know you know vocal behavior that can sort of tell me you know what's going on uh you know, And therefore, aren't able to go get an EDS diagnosis or a POTS diagnosis or a coordination disorder diagnosis and so on and so forth. Um, they're just dealing with this stuff. Um, and, and we as clinicians are trying to get them to do things that, you know, sometimes they either can't do. Because if it's POTS and they're getting sick every time we tell them to stand up and sit down or if uh you know if yeah. their arms are hurting or legs are hurting because we're making them sit cross legged in, in, in you know in circle time or whatever um you know because you don't sit like that it's wrong you know and so on and so forth um and, and then even the coordination disorders like there's so many things in there that that i don't think we i mean maybe they're out there but i don't think generally as clinicians we look at would you no. say If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is post.
1: I agree. And I think, you know, you see dyspraxia sometimes in, in a child's diagnostic evaluation. Yes. And then we just skip right past it, right? Like <laughs> dyspraxia. And then we're like, put in a motor imitation program, do this. <laughs> do this cross your arms right. touch your head and rub your belly at the same time and if you don't i'm going to prompt you to do so and and withhold your reinforcement until you do think about how damaging that can be this is something i'm struggling with i'm telling you mm-hmm. that how i would stress so much about those skills tests
0: that's just what i was thinking yeah um
1: in school, I was always, um, my ex has me still, but I, that I was always like, I'm never going to graduate. That was always my, I'm not going to get to graduate. Of course mm-hmm. I did and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But that was a major source of anxiety was I'm going to have to perform now. And mm-hmm. I think about that all the time when I'm, and I feel like when we're uh, collecting data, like watching these kids, like a hawk on their performance and you're you know, and using their preferences <laughs> as a, as motivation to perform when some of these things physiologically might be a major struggle, a major hurdle for them to try to mm-hmm. overcome. And we're, without considering that, I think we're, we're not really providing that person centered, like just think about this whole individual, right? And not to say they're broken and I'll never be able to develop some sort of coordination, but we need to look at what's within their repertoire for their skill set. Like for me, if I would have had to have a skills test every semester and just climbing and running and you know the things that I was really good at, I'd have been just fine, right? Could have saved a lot of anxiety. And migraines were crazy at that time. Just I was stressed just to have to perform, even though yeah, I was an excellent student, right? ask me the steps and the cues and the biomechanics of any movement I could tell you hmm. I could you know but you want me to show you um <laughs> uh, give me a second right yeah yeah let me stress myself out and so luckily I think I'm a, a under pressure I work well under pressure type person uh unfortunately unfortunately I have to say because sometimes I think there's some I like create the pressure for myself so that I can work well on accident. um, And so that's kind of what got me through, right? Like I'm, let me just get it together for this one moment and then break down afterwards or whatever so that I can get through this moment and the pressure is on and I'm going to figure out how to perform right now. And that was, I think, long-term damaging, right? Mm-hmm. To set myself up in that, in that way. It, it kind of like, Added on and on and on, to just like high intense masking, I guess, in the in like the in, in some form or fashion. Like, okay, it's time to go put the athlete mask on. I'm gonna have all the coordination that I mm-hmm. don't really have in, mm-hmm. in this moment, and there was no way for me to practice. For really, pra- you know, you can study for a test, right? But if you re- you read, I mean, many people have read ten thousand hours. You know, I mean, have read The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. Um, that talk about like how many hours that you kind of need to become an expert in some 10,000 hours, he says. Right. Talk about, right. No way in a semester or six weeks, whatever time I'm going to get my 10,000 hours on, you know, hitting this this uh, birdie with the badminton, <laughs> you know, uh, racket. So what could I do? So it just took some intense, like performative uh, requirements. And so I, I often just go back to that, and empathize with my student and my clients and students so much because I feel like we're asking to do that for hours and hours and hours a week I have to tell my RBT sometimes when you take that data that's the test right I call that the test at the end of the week we're just seeing if our if our services and our teaching is effective and impactful Mm -hmm. and now we're taking data on if it was don't forget don't use that as your teaching opportunity is what I often have to say we're because oftentimes we can wait to teach and waits wait to until we are correcting to teach mm. instead of teaching ahead, right? And can you imagine being tested every second and then you just get your eighty or your sixty percent uh, red mark on your on your exam and your professor's like, all right, I guess now it's time to teach you
2: mm-hmm. And then
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's now it's time to start teaching you the content after you made a mistake mm. right and and so I can't imagine. So when I'm the child is hiding under the table, <laughs> or running away, or we, all these things we pathologized, call labeled elopement. He's eloping. He's falling to the floor. He's dropping. He's doing the thing mm. one. He could back to the pots. He could not be feeling well. Yes. Uh, uh, back to the uh, connective tissue collagen joint disorders. Any things like that. Dyspraxia. Even he might need to stretch his arms and legs because he's been sitting and crisscross for way too long. Yeah. Um, And now he needs to move. He needs to stretch them out. It's my he might be achy or sore, but they or she and they might not have the language to tell us that. And even me, I'm in my 30s, mid 30s. And I don't know if I have the language to describe everything that I feel inside all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm still learning how to use the language and the vocabulary that I have to communicate what I feel. And it never actually, it feels kind of bad to do so at this point, right? Like, I don't want anyone to think I'm making it up. How do I describe it? How do I put these words together to to say in a way that they understand? Someone gives you a pain skill. I don't know how to use those things.
2: Hmm.
1: Nobody teaches you how to use a pain skill ever. They just, you don't learn until the moment you're in pain. That's (laughs) right. Like a 10 is like, okay, well, I wouldn't, you know, be talking to you if I wasn't an any. So it's not like someone. You know when you're growing up in school says here's some pain skills one day you might need this at the doctor's office <laughs> we're gonna st- simulate some you know random pain so you know how to answer these questions uh so even with vocal communication right These things are difficult
0: gotcha yeah and so sure.
1: we, we're working with with people in general who you know we have communication deficits and um the dsm-5 right you know we have some things that we're working on uh some neurological differences that might impact how how we can express what's going on internally whether that's physiological uh, emotional mentally intellectually um so we're i mean i don't envy our roles in trying to tap into all of those different areas but i do think that we should um definitely make sure that we are informed that there's more to a person you know it's that it's that observed behavior right It's this all, mm-hmm. this all i see so it must be all it is right and you could look at me all day and and assume that i don't struggle with anything at all but you'd be completely wrong right yeah um, yeah yeah <laughs> and so that's with your eyes but that's what we say that's all we can do and and then, then now it's only based off of what i tell you hmm. yeah so I learned just last week that I have a degenerative disc in my neck. and I, But aside, <laughs> I traveled and got into a car accident in a, in a, as a passenger in an Uber, and that's a whole situation. Yeah, yeah. Getting checked out for that. And I'm like, the whole time? You know? So <laughs> I did not know. And so I've, for as much as I've been trying to investigate on the migraines that I get and all that, without that x-ray, right? I would never have known that I have some uh vertebrae that are smashed on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um how's what I know we're not dig you know if, if others don't dig deeply if I never said this area really is kind of hurting me, you know. Um you can only know off what someone tells you. So that's that those are some of the the areas that I feel like we just gotta as far as language goes, <laughs> make sure that we are helping um uh, children, whether they have any kind of diagnosis or not to communicate their internal physical states Mm -hmm. um, as much as possible and see how well we can get that aligned with what they're actually feeling not what we want them to (laughs) to feel because it's super hard to teach
0: yeah because we often I think most BCBAs out there have heard and used the phrase rule out medical right and, uh, you know, and once we rule out medical, it's like, a, it's like a free ticket to do whatever we want with the kid now, because there's no medical problems here. Um, you know, we can bend and twist them in any which way we want, and so on and so forth. I remember, I can't remember what the phrase he used, but Brian Middleton, he's a autistic BCBA, probably know who he is. he had a phrase that instead of rule out, it was, it was, it was more like something like something effective just it hit a better phrase we can we, we can find it but uh, just sort of take that into consideration yeah, consider, you know yeah. consider it don't get rid of it and and um, yeah. and always be thinking of always have medical in your mind when you're doing these things so it's not okay we've ruled out that he's got a toothache or an ear in, or an eye, ear infection which are sort of the only causes of SIB. Um <laughs> quote unquote. Um and uh and so it must be some other reason. And so it must be some you know behavioral reason and let's move on and we can, you know, extinct it out of them. Um and uh, uh extinguish it out of them, I guess maybe so I, I, I use that word. Um, and um but when you have things like you're saying that are you know constant and hard to articulate even for someone you know with you know who's you know highly educated and you know multiple degrees and so on and so forth and and you even struggle to articulate it sometimes imagine what these kids are going through
2: They
0: cannot, yeah uh, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 so it, it it's and 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 it yeah I like I feel like you're you're And maybe you'll get back there someday. There's no pressure. But I feel like your adaptive sports piece, your personal experience of now having all of these sort of, you know, physical disorders related to that that are often connected with autism. um, You know, I I think you could you could blow up the world with some some um, some uh, some educating for a lot of us folks, because I think there's a lot of folks that need to know this stuff that don't and uh, and we don't pay attention to it.
1: I will take that as a seed planted. And, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's not falling on deaf ears at, yeah. at all.
0: Yes. Well, it's all still there. I mean, you don't have to get a PhD in it to do that work and and to incorporate it. and You're probably already incorporating it in some ways. Couple questions about just. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure of your the timeline. So, did you switch over to ABA? And kind of started working with autistic folks before your diagnosis and before you had kids or or did those things kind of happen
2: yeah it
1: was all before so um you know when i started working with just uh disabled kids in general and adults and everything this is the group of the, the population of individuals with which I felt the most comfortable in my mm, life yeah. and that it's as safe as possible to be my authentic self Yeah. um and I feel just like I've always just been drawn without knowing why and as far as being diagnosed that it actually came as a surprise to me my mm. son was diagnosed and then you know the doctor i have been working with and still do was just like oh yeah yeah <laughs> you know I have this on your on your uh rap sheet essentially you know and have you ever, you've never considered that. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, no. um, and you know, just and she educated me a lot on this the mis- misdiagnoses and and talk and especially of African American women or women in general or mm. who are identify as um, son female at birth uh, individuals as far as receiving a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, and then especially if, you know, you didn't show any kind of struggle in. Academics, uh, you know, mm. never identifying schools, highly educated, all those things, and so um, the timeline was went to school, worked with this population, and every, I mean, oftentimes just feeling at home, but not like oh, I got that too, you know, just it was not like that. Um, my son, I can see it. So we have a lot of similarities, and even still, I wasn't like if he if he is autistic, I'm autistic, right? Um, so. He got evaluated and, um initially i you know put in for him to be evaluated for adh thinking that maybe he has adhd um and then that's what came back and i was like okay you know <laughs> it, it doesn't matter you know i just want him yeah. to have the support he needs and um i you know i can see both so uh then when i brought that up like, in the, like i say in the podcast on the shades of maybe podcast like then it come it came up for me and again it was it was a relief and it and it helped me feel actually validated for some of the things that i was just so passionate about in the in the field some of the things that really rocked me and mm-hmm. how we were we we're treating our kids and why my philosophy of practice might be the way that it is and um it was more than anything it was validation um and that I guess my brain was telling me that I was somehow broken, right? And it's not, and actually, I'm not, right? It's not to say that uh, having a disability or being autistic or anything makes you appear broken, but if this world is telling me that my ways are, quote unquote, anything like quirky or awkward or weird Mm -hmm. or different, you know, all these other words and language, Um, then again, you know, I'm just like, what's wrong with me? And there's nothing wrong. It actually made me be like, oh, (laughs) great, you know, be all right. So, um, that's, that's really what that's, that's done for me, but also, um, I'm happy to be able to be transparent about it. And of course people will judge in their anyway, right? They will make their own judgments based off of their own observations. You, I've gotten the, there's no way you're autistic, you know, Mm. and because you can do X, Y, Z. Right. Um, there's no way because if you were, I mean, you don't look like my friend's cousin's nephew's son's little brother, my neighbor, my whatever. Um. And there's a lot of just stereotypes and you get, you kind of just get that like, or um, because of the ability to self-diagnose, which I completely respect because I feel like Maybe if my son hadn't been diagnosed, would I have ever right? Like, mm-hmm. or if I, would I have ever known? Would I if I didn't bring it up and just like I was just telling her, and she's like, oh, yeah, right, yeah, of it. course. uh How would how would I know? And um, and it's expensive. It's it's not accessible. Um, that you know, with self diagnosis, a lot of people are like, oh, it's you know, that people are calling themselves autistic as a identity or mm. whatever, and <laughs> if. If anyone is, well, come on. You know, that's how I feel. Like, come on. Because in, it, it. I'm a disabled person in that way. But also, anybody I talk to, I get a lot of phone calls through psychology today from mm. African-American um, women, mm. adults, and sometimes adult men who just now, in ages 30 plus, received a diagnosis of, of autism or mm. was sent a link to a you know, self-diagnostic quotient and they yeah. are just like, whoa, this is life-changing. And I always have to refer them out because they're not my, <laughs> it's not my role. Usually, because sometimes they're looking for official diagnosis right. or they're looking for um, just general counseling services, but um, I've, I've kind of uh, made some good connections there and, like, hearing other people's stories and they reach out to me because I'm someone that is open and transparent and looks like them right and I mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. don't have a lot of examples of how to be like okay well i have this diagnosis like what do i do now <laughs> you know yeah, What's yeah next? and um so for me the t- the timeline I, I mean it just happens to be that i one had already started in this field so of course you get the it's just because you work with autistic kids that you you know you think it's like i don't think i didn't think anything This is exactly yeah. <laughs> um or it's only because your son that you think, you know, just whatever. It doesn't, none of that matters. It's like, my my Still my purpose is to love whole people as whole people as much as possible. And mm. if I can love myself as a whole person and, and having this ICD code or DSM-5 code mm. attached to my name helps me accept myself as a whole person so that I can better love others, I'm here for it. And if that does that to anybody else, I'm also here for it. So, um, you know, I always find any form of diagnosis is valid, even if it's by yourself. And, mm-hmm. um, and any uh, anything that helps guide empathy and compassion, um, especially in this industry for the people that we are serving, um, I'm I'm here for So, as many. Autistic BCBAs it's, I get to connect with and know. I'm just so happy because I feel like as hard as it is to um, participate in this medical model of, of ABA for the most part to keep our lights on, right? Mm-hmm. That there is a lot of hope for impact um, through this love, compassion, and empathy that I know that I'm not alone in in having for these kiddos who... You know, in each and every single one, you could you see a little bit of, you know, your own experience and, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. want to make sure you're covering all the bases, considering not ruling out medical because I don't think we even actually really rule out all the time. Like what is the rule out process? You saw dyspraxia, mm-hmm. did you look it up? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know that, that was motor coordination disorder? Did you did you research that? Did you find all the articles? Are we having time to do that?
2: mm, mm-hmm. right.
1: um did you roll out this long list of um uh, previous diagnoses that are are on this child's diagnostic report, or did you just yeah. scan it for the background information you need for your insurance support right?
2: Yeah. yeah
0: I want to talk about I want to talk about uh, what we were talking about in the beginning and how you kind of combine a few things. We've already talked about a few things that you combine, but I want to talk about one more. Um, and that's, uh, being a doula,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, b- before we get into kind of what that's all about, maybe you can just tell me what a doula is and, and maybe, I'm, cause I'm sure it's a common question, how it differs from a midwife.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So a doula is in the most layman terms is a birth helper, right? Birth helper and advocate so uh, and a midwife is uh, usually a nurse midwife um so they have to go to midwifery school it is mm. a medical service being provided sure. um doulas are not catchers of babies uh, mm. doulas don't typically touch the the mom or catch or the birthing person or catch the the baby as they enter the world mm but they can be alongside a midwife or a physician or, you know, a birthing person and their partner to deliver a baby without actually delivering the baby gotcha. doulas birth doulas are that Doulas are, There are other kinds, there are postpartum mm. doulas, there are death doulas. And so if you think of, if you think of, you know, what I said about being a helper and an advocate, so in each of those ways during birth a doula would be helping supporting uh during the birthing process both the birthing person and their partner and anyone else who needs it siblings and all uh during the postpartum process a birthing a doula would be supporting the parents the um and anybody who would need it in the, during mm. that time and then um death doulas are totally, you know, could be separate or or around the same. These are people who help grieving um, humans as they get through the grief process, um, helping advocate for them and helping them through things from as simple as coordinating meals to helping get the funeral arrangements, Hmm. you know, calling the numbers, right? Advocates, so think about just advocacy. In a lot of cultures (laughs) we don't need things like doulas because that just exists in the community right Right. you have birthing people who kind of birth around the same time everyone helps each other out you have the aunties and the you know the community uh person who just is always available during yeah before during and after these these things including death um life and death start of life and end of life um but here in this siloed, <laughs> um, place that we live in, you know, I don't, where I don't know my neighbors and they would have no idea if I was over here giving birth right now. Mm. Um, we, we kind of need roles like doulas, um, and it is a uh, pretty underutilized, uh, resource and, uh, but can be extremely helpful in reducing, um, maternal, maternal mortality. Mm. Uh, so, uh midwives are medical service providers doulas are helpers and advocates
0: and with the death doula is that related to death of a baby or just death in general any, any death, death. It okay it
1: could be it could be pet death it could be um you know partner death
2: hmm.
1: parent death, child death or uh, you know any of the above so um again, underutilized and actually a lot of people just don't even know, like they can mm-hmm. get some help in those times and um, might be a good resource to maybe gift to someone going through any of those birth postpartum death, mm. right? Um, because all of those are very huge life-changing moments mm. for the, that every single person living on this earth um, has experienced either by being the birthed person right yeah. or um, will experience because it's, it's all um, inevitable right life and death is inevitable so yeah just supporting others through those moments is the work of a doula so
0: what do you, do you anything about sort of the, the the history like like where the idea of doulas came from that sort of thing like is that a it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's a, a north american idea
1: <laughs> uh yeah so like I said before that um they come from just other cultures and mm. you have to excuse my lack of just the facts right now I don't want to like misspeak on on the no, facts but um from my doula training and just kind of where I come from but um uh, Many cultures, it's kind of taking from other cultures and <laughs> ideas hmm. about having someone in the village or tribe or community that hmm. is responsible for supporting and advocating in these ways, gotcha. and it's not having this here. So, um, you know, a lot of the history that I pay attention to is like the history of gynecology, the history and, and the rates of the disparity in maternal mortality mm. rates and what this looked like historically, particularly for women of color, and then more particularly for African-American women of color. Mm. Um, and so uh, doulas <laughs> it started, it have been used alongside, sometimes mostly alongside midwives to help in the process of kind of arranging the environment and making sure everyone is well during a, during a birth. And um, so, in, when it's noticed that you know, moms are dying in childbirth, right? Um, and no one knows why, and then the added doulas, and I can't even tell you what year, um, starting to see a reduction in maternal mortality, right? But mm. so something that a doula would do would be helping, um, with birthing positions mm. and uh, drinking enough water, um, breathing. It's the you think about. A, old school Lamaze class and was always on TV in the past. You, you see yeah, something? yeah. But like having the correct breathing uh, strategies, uh, supporting partners, supporting their birthing person, um, massages, light touch massages, anything that the birthing person would need with their permission,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but not delivering the actual yeah. uh, baby. And so finding that the birth, the doula who also helps with kind of like at an intake, um, what do you want? You know, helping someone start to learn to advocate for themselves. So I'm not speaking for the birthing person, but teaching the birthing person to speak for themselves. It's not too dissimilar to what we do <laughs> in behavior analysis, right? So providing tools and skills to first of all, identify what it is that you want, what kind of experience you want to have, but also educating them on what the birthing process, can be like what could happen and having mm. some plans in place, some proactive strategies and some reactive strategies for things that could happen during the, during the birthing process so that we're not all going in there blind um, and that the system can't just tell you what you're doing with your own body mm. because historically that has resulted in mortality, <laughs> which is huge. Right? It's mm-hmm. not just in like oh um, just birth defects, right? Not it's, there's no just on birth defects, right? Right. It, that's huge too. But this is actual like people are dying, so it is um it's pretty solid intervention to uh, increasing uh, life <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, survivability of the of the birthing person and even their children at, at sometimes at at many times. So wow. um, it's prioritizing the rights of the person on the other side of the situation. So not just get, let's get this baby out of here. And that's the point of this, it is let's make sure the person who's getting the baby, <laughs> who we're getting the baby out of is feeling fully supported and heard hmm. in this moment. So um, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question.
0: No, you totally did. Why did you decide to become a doula?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So a few different reasons why um, one is uh, my own experience as a birthing person mm. um, and mom. Um, and then the other is uh, trying to find another way to just be impactful um, and do that loving whole people as whole people mm. that I feel like I'm meant to do um, outside of this industry that I've found myself in. Right. Mm. Um, so I'll speak to the second point first. Um, you know, I was feeling really overwhelmed by this medical model of ABA that we tend to have to provide, um, people asking me about billables and talking about people as if they're not people. Mm. (laughs) And, um, suggesting, you know, requesting a child engage in more time in a service than they could ever possibly need so that, so the numbers look right, you know, or, um, and at that time specifically, I had a, um, a client that had had some severe trauma and being told just consider him like any other kid, you know, what would you do Mm -hmm. for anybody else? And having to just, like really fight and advocate for more training and trauma-informed care, which I did take uh, Dr. Kola's coursework and just Mm. um, feeling like I was losing my grip on the ability to be one clinically autonomous, but also like to use that passion and fervor that got me into the field anyway. Mm. And so honestly it was like, I got to find a way out. What else can I do? Right. Um, And leap of faith situation like i just had to quit what i was doing and take some some uh doula classes and just start researching it um and learning that and learning so much more than than why than than i ever could have imagined on like why i was led to that you know um Mm. and then as far as personal experience goes you know my you know, for the birth of my son, I was, I didn't, I had a a birth plan. I'm a really intense person. Is the is intense is the word that I feel like I've it's been I've been labeled my entire mm. life. I just uh don't do things halfway. That right. So I knew I was about to have my first child. I wanted to do things as best as possible. Um, didn't have a doula, couldn't afford one, but definitely still worked at worked looked into. Um, having a birth plan and all these things all prepared to go and but it was just me and mm. my sp- my partner and um, had all these plans in place and I don't want a, a episiotomy I don't want this to happen to my body please explain what you're doing to me as before you do it and then as you're doing it like all of mm. this is written mm. I'm taking it to every doctor's appointment she's like yeah 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 we'll do that you know and always looking at because that's like, I can imagine she walked out the door. She's one of those with a birth plan, you know, like, mm. she's one of those. Right. Um, like, you're going to do it, right? I'm just, you You know, these things. And the reasons for those things is because I have a history of sexual assault trauma. And
2: mm.
1: I did not want my birth, the birth of my son to ever like cross, you know, the, the, the trauma from that to ever cross mm. over. I needed to be a magical moment as much as I can, understanding that there's pain and all the things. And so I'm just right. trying to get ahead of any of those feelings and time to deliver. And there it's just like a marathon. Like, I have the birth plan. Did you get my birth plan? You know, do you have it? Do you have it? We got it. We got it. And
2: mm.
1: for the most part, the place that he was delivered at the nurses and stuff listened for the most part. I wanted to sit in a bath and I wanted them to just let me do what I needed to do. Just let me, you, you know, I don't want not want hands on me. I want you checking me every five seconds, unless maybe mm. like this is what I need, so I can have a successful birth. Like, this is what yeah. I can. Trying to advocate for myself, I tried to get ahead of it, and then guess what? My doctor is not here. <laughs> so somebody oh, no. else comes in the room, and it's a male, <clears throat> and he walks in the door and says, "All right, what we got here?" Takes the scalpel and cuts me. Um. <clears throat> so, episiotomy happened anyway, right? Wow. hold baby around and out and I'm just like oh my god <laughs> you know like that every you know the things that were not at plan just happening like in the in the moment of actually getting to deliver my son um and then that is impactful though like that impact yeah. it was the, my son is here he's beautiful loved him a lot of other things went really well I was so glad we, had, we kind of planned for this they didn't the delight how I wanted they let me have the music you know pretty good um place to to birth, except for, you know, this.
0: The second secret word is adaptive.
1: Really important piece that had been like overly harassing my doctor about was ignored. Right. And so immediately, you know, in that moment, it was just like shock, baby's here, you got to move on. But with the ways I can see in retrospect, nine years later, how that might have impacted me, especially with him, was that my anxiety my postpartum anxiety with my son was severe. It's like, I didn't trust anybody would listen to anything I would say on how to care for him. Mm. Um, I didn't, you know, I wanted to just keep him safe all the time. I feel I had this thing in my mind. People don't listen. That's, that was just repeating in my mind. Nobody listens. People don't listen. So that was my son, my daughter. Um, uh, the birth was also a marathon. Um, I the second child syndrome. I let go of some of these other extra requirements, but I still had a birth plan mm-hmm. and I still had things that were important to me. Still tried to hand that to my doctor. Nobody read the thing. Mm. Um, and um, at the time of the birth, she came really fast in one push actually. Um, mm. And then was whisked off because there was something going on with her eyes at the time. So I didn't even get to hold her or see her or do the things that I wanted to do. When she first, I wanted to, you know, hold on to the cord. I didn't want to delay the cord clamping. That was the one for her. Like, they didn't delay it. They cut it right away. And then they, I held her for a second. Then they they took her away. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, and I'm not the only one with a story like this. Like, people have had such big stories. But after this, um, I was there. Everyone kind of maybe left through. My daughter's not even there. And I'm like, I'm laying down, kind of sitting up. And I feel really, really, really lightheaded. Hmm. and i was telling the one nurse that's in the room like I don't, I don't feel good you know there's something going on like I'm feeling lightheaded you know and she's like oh yeah that's normal after birth It's normal. Hmm. Like, no I don't you know I'm like like losing I feel like losing consciousness and then so she, I'm like I don't know I just I'm feeling really lightheaded like like how I feel when I'm about to pass out which I had done before right it hmm. so she opens my sheet like it kind of pushes on my on my um uterus and blood is everywhere i mean it's a scene wow so i was hemorrhaging wow so then they had to call in so many people and i mm. guess this point is like a faint memory but also i can see it you know i don't know how many people it just felt like a lot like yeah he's hemorrhaging they had to get me i don't know what they had to do they had to they had to fix it yeah they had to give me um they put something there to stop the bleeding. They had to call their, their team. uh, They had to give me some fluids. You know, all these things happened. And that's probably the, the you know, statistically um can be uh, on top three reasons for maternal mortality. Yeah, uh, right. Particularly in African-American women because what had been replaying in my head, people don't listen, right? Mm. So, you know, we are kind of seeing, seeing yes. as, strong black woman you got this uh you'll be all right right um and wow. then if we speak up nobody listens right yeah so um even um serena williams had issues with this you know after the birth of her, her child and you know it's a, a story that her story that she'll tell if you just google it serena williams um uh hospital uh birth bir- birthing hospital uh situation He had to get up and go to the counter and say, I need help. No one was listening to her. So, there's the research shows that despite status, uh, socioeconomic status, um, uh, like, uh, what's the other things? Uh, It's like social status, right? Uh, Like familiarity as a famous person. And it doesn't matter how much money or education. So, these are Mm -hmm. things. That black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth. Wow. Three times. Then their non-black counterparts. And it's not including the other women of color. They're, you know, other women of color are right after black women, uh, African-American women. So hearing those alarming rates and having had my experience, also trying to find a way around what I was doing, but still be able to use my passion kind of led me to To doula ing. And, um, you know, I feel like this last two years has been me um, working all of that knowledge and information into one, my practicing as a behavior analyst, because I couldn't just leave, right? (laughs) Um, Trying to, it's not, I couldn't maintain my financial situation. It's just a doula. Right. but also, I don't. I didn't want to. Ha- I don't want to have to leave the field of ABA. I still love this field. I still love what, yeah. I, love what I do. And so, trying to use all of that, including my adaptive PE experience, um, and my ability to collaborate and work with other providers, you know, physicians and their occupational, physical therapists, all the things, um, mm. special educators, and doula stuff, which can seem like ADHD you know it's gonna be like yeah you're always doing something why you have so many certifications <laughs> um but I feel like it's for a reason and yeah. um instead of judging myself or always doing too much uh finding ways to utilize it all and as much as I can educate others on how to utilize it all even if they're not the ones going to get their dual license like what what can we do
0: yeah no, I it makes perfect sense to me why you'd have all those different things going on. I mean, it certainly, if you don't know what any of those rules involve, it could sound a little insane, but <laughs> but it definitely seems like it all fits. and I mean, I, I think about sort of just even from our ethics code and and how we need to be you know advocating for our clients, um, you know, I mean you're you're learning super advocacy skilled you're advocating for the unborn and you're advocating for the mother in contexts where you know it's really busy and no one's listening
1: yeah that part it's really busy and no one's listening so as a bcba we walk into people's homes i want to make sure that when it's really busy and no one's listening and that this parent who has been experiencing, it's really busy and no one listening Mm -hmm. up to the point that I walk in their door or log into their Zoom or whatever it is, feels heard and seen and understood Mm. through the whole process. You know, many times these parents have filled out the same form about when did your child start walking, crawling, talking, Mm. um, were they born full term? That's all we care about. No one's asking Mm -hmm. like, what was the birthing process like for you? Right. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to the anxiety that I had after I had my son. And I had my daughter. The postpartum depression was so, so bad, and so, um, yeah, you know, I spoke about that on the tough as mother episode of the shades of ABA podcast yeah. as well. Um, that I almost didn't make it to be able to to be a mom to my kids or serve these clients, right? Yeah. And that situation definitely impacts my parenting today. So if anyone Mm -hmm. wants to ever say, why do you do this as a parent? Why do you allow this? Why do you treat your kids like this? Why do you put this much effort into whatever? There's a reason, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason why this mom responds immediately every time her child falls to the floor.
2: Mm.
1: So instead of me judging her is like, super reactive or all the mm. other things that we can say. Yeah. She's not listening to my parent training and she doesn't she thinks we're just trying to kind of fix her kid, whatever the things we we tend to judge parents about during our parent training. Um, how do we ask sometimes? Like,
2: yeah.
1: Um, what's it like when you have your child around your friends? What do you what kind of feelings come up for you, right? Sometimes you get mm. like, I'm really embarrassed. My child is not doing what my other friends are doing. And that's important to me because blank do we ask those questions or are we concerned with how many weeks gestation they were or were they preemie so we can rule out yeah medical conditions
2: rule out
1: yeah so hmm. and if we want this parent training to be effective and last for the long term um i think these parents need to feel like we understand them why are you the way you are why does your household run the way that it, that it runs and mm-hmm. it's not a gimmick or a trick or a grooming, right? Um, it is, I mean, genuinely, tell me more, right? Mm. Did people listen to you? Have people been listening to you up to now? Mm. Am I gonna be one of those people that listens to you right now? Because I feel like they're telling us all the time, sometimes not with their words, just like our kiddos can't do, but in their yeah. actions. And so really is just advocating for people to listen to everyone. And so mm-hmm. just like the mother, or the bothering person, the father, the adopted parent, the anybody, mm-hmm. the foster parent um, is existing as a in a parental role for the child that we are serving. They were also a child once, right? And we yeah. are not, you know, understanding our scope of competence is super important. I'm not a counselor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but i definitely need to know how to work through listening to my parents and referring them to other services when they need and offering them a safe space to discuss what's going on with them without offering suggestions if it's not behavioral analytic in nature but sometimes we're the only one they're already pressured to Coordinate these therapy hours, attend our parent trainings. Um, and so, if they say, like, man, last night was rough, maybe for me, what I'm learning is not going right into how many times did he or she mm. engage in X behavior. Right. And maybe asking a few more open ended questions like, what's going on? How'd you sleep last night? Mm. Right. Because an unsle- underslept parent is not gonna be able to access the complex jargon and I- interventions that we may use as practitioners. Um, just like I don't function well when I, I don't sleep or eat or drink well, um, I they might be operating on the bare minimum. So let's get that taken mm. care of. So um, I don't care about putting in goals for self-care <laughs> for my parents and trying to figure out sleep for everybody right away because I am asking them to climb a mountain when I tell them to implement and I ask them to implement some intervention that I can, of course, do because I slept well last night. Mm. My RBT can do because they're not here 24 hours a day yeah. with this child. Um, They're not skipping meals so, you know, so that they can... uh. Mm-hmm they can just, uh, I don't know, take a shower for five seconds so they skip dinner, <laughs> or whatever it is. So, but now I'm like, why, why is this parent doing this thing? I'm so mad. Um, and if they say to me, man, birth was tough. Nobody's, I had so many parents say, nobody's ever asked me. My
2: dad
1: Was ever asked me, like, about me, what this has been like for me.
2: <laughs>
1: because now I can see why you're hovering over your child, right? Following them every second. Maybe they are whisked off or in the NICU for a while. Maybe they, you know, you and your, your child both almost lost their lives during the birthing process. Nobody can mm. keep leaving that part out of, out of the, out of the report, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Um. Maybe you've been in a fight with your in-laws for the whole extent of your child's life mm. about how to parent them. And so that's why you do what you do. Because in your culture, this is what you're supposed to do, and if if you don't do it, you're going to lose your whole family, right? You know, just mm. all your support system, that, all of that is important. Before I come in the door, trying to tell you how to run your household, <laughs> just based off the science.
0: Mm. I often hear, or I really hear too much. It's more just tidbits here from. from Colleagues or friends that that were parents or were parents, Um, I hear about postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, and I have no idea what that means beyond the obvious that it's after birth or, or after maybe a loss, um, um. What that even means, and, and 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 how long it can last, and 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 what effects it can have, and just thinking about your points about, you know, if you're meeting a mom for the first time for, who has a maybe a two year old child who has just been diagnosed, I'm guessing some of these things can be present at that time, um, yes. and and maybe for a lot longer. So so what what is what is postpartum depression? Because I hear that a lot
1: yeah so there's you hear baby blues um quite often that would be yeah. just a really acute um postpartum period of sadness and um, usually associated with like hormonal response and hormonal change response uh postpartum depression anxiety you can be on and psychosis could be on this mm. this moment right this is a physiological mental emotional, um, excuse me, disorder that is uh, triggered by uh, birth loss, the um, birthing period, any of mm. that perinatal meaning within the pregnancy, uh, depression, anxiety is, is a huge thing too, you know. Mm. Um, and so the depression is, uh, usually around uh, feeling hopeless or uh, lost, uh, worthless, sad, um, and beyond and feeling having some feelings that feel beyond your control, mm. right? It is extremely common and um. Mm. Uh, Underrecognized, recognized and you mm. see all these people in the world walking around you're like wow how many you know uh, how do we all exist here and how do we all make it through
2: mm-hmm.
1: knowing that this exists right uh it is it can be treated with antidepressants therapy all those mm. things just like depression It can tend to be exacerbated by one hormonal shifts but two the fact that you're now responsible for single or multiple children um mm their well-being in life at the Mm. same time as experiencing this intense uh, depressed state. Mm. So um, the pressure is on, right? To one, not appear to be bothered (laughs) by what you're bothered by, um, and two, to still successfully manage caring for another human Mm. so that you, I don't know, stay out of jail or Mm. hospital or any of those things right yeah um socially people look at you and they come and there's a phrase that you know i learned in my doula coursework was everyone wants to hold the baby but who holds the mother
2: Hmm.
1: right so you could have been a person who had a lot of got a lot of attention for whatever reason or another and then the baby comes and you're invisible right Hmm. uh this baby exists ahead of you and often as a mother that you have to Put your needs obviously aside, starting mm. from conception, um, as the baby takes over your body uh, to care for this other organism. Mm. So, uh, and the consequences for not are dire, right? Like you could lose them, uh, you could be in the jailhouse, uh, mm. all the things. So, get better, do it. And so there, that's the depression part. Anxiety. It's just like we, you think about the anxiety that we feel, and you know that a lot of people feel on, on a daily basis. It's an intense. Um, state of worry, uh, irritability, uh, for both depression and anxiety piece, uh, uh, kind of maybe increased heart rate, all the physiological things that come along with anxiety. Mm. Um, also again, intensified by hormonal shifts and this pressure to mm. now maintain the life of another human being. Um, and this is not even just to say if you have you know, singles or multiples, twins, triplets, you could already have children, Um, even if it's just a spouse, you know, you're still responsible for them and you're responsible for yourself, your spouse (laughs) and this child. And so Mm -hmm. the postpartum depression anxiety is not, um, it's not just for the birthing person, the partners can also experience this too. And that's often like watching your partner deliver and also just the major life shift of now being responsible for this other person um, even for birthing partners that, that can have major hormonal shifts, um, just being as a partner. Um, so I have a book here, it's called the postpartum husband. Um, and it's just about the postpartum depression in um, fathers, which mm-hmm. is super common, but also under discussed. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, so it's really just after this time, how one is managing with and coping with uh, managing and coping with the lifestyle, uh, hormonal, emotional, mental shifts that Mm. occur with this setting event, right? Um, We had a child. Our environment changed. What we Mm. have to do in our environment shifted significantly. The Mm. relationship between partners tends to shift significantly. Um, Just that alone without a child can cause some severe depression and anxiety just a shift in, in relationship so mm. um, it having a, a a birth can be beautiful and magical and wonderful and and amazing but it also opens up a lot of opportunity for trauma um re- relational changes mood shifts and all of that mm. so postpartum depression anxiety and psychosis um mm. which is when um all of these things get to such a state that and the person reaches the level of psychosis, which you hear about in the worst ways, right? Um, sometimes, mm. but it's it's not that it's not so survivable and it always ends in that way. But you know, you have um, mothers who don't aren't here, right? You you left your your body and your mind. Are you being told things that hearing things, um, seeing things, uh, mm. believing things that aren't true, uh, all as a result of this one event. And it is just not well understood. So as far as the the onset, and then how long it could last, it's always assumed like, okay, the first year is gonna be hard, all will be well, but it can last three years, six years, Mm. the impact of postpartum depression, anxiety, especially if it's going unsupported, we have a um, partner who doesn't know how to support during that time. Mm. uh, Family support, it might be minimal. If someone is single parenting, they're all alone, isolated, they have little support or people support in the worst ways, get over it. You, you know, uh, you're fine or you'll be good. You're strong, you know, you <laughs> can those things. The impact of all of that um, can last, not just for three to six years. This is where, where it would be where you can, you know, maybe still call it postpartum depression, anxiety, but think about just his history as context of how we, they might interact with the world and other people telling them what to do with their child, their bodies, their anything based off of this one um, defining moment, just birth mm. this child. And a lot of people have multiple children like me. So each time there's another opportunity. So when we are working with parents, we have to have access to, to in order to get to our clients, right? considering that on the parental side should be extremely important mm. because it will, it probably greatly impacts how they've been caring for their child up to the point that we meet them, how they will continue mm. to care for the child. Um, and we cannot assume that they are beyond postpartum depression or anxiety mm. uh, at, the, at the time that we meet them and especially with early intervention. It's very likely that even if they didn't go through postpartum depression and anxiety, getting their child being diagnosed um, with any disability is mm-hmm. an entire process of grief right. that is not typically addressed or supported. Um so I think at minimum, you know, if we have a list of resources like for that grief process support groups, um, that would be great because you get a lot of panicked parents yeah. and intake, right? Yeah. What do I do? Just got this diagnosis. I have to fix it up, right? Because that child, I have to ask parents often. Remember that when you found out you were pregnant, if you wanted to, you know, if it was an expected pregnancy or even if it wasn't, and, or, you know, these feelings of joy and euphoria that you might have felt and rub your belly you're screamed into the baby. You know, I have people ex- describe the pregnancy. How was it? Were you excited? Were you not? You know, <laughs> which was, and I'm not assuming one or the other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you remember that moment and who that child was to you then, right? They didn't know they weren't um exposed to these environmental variables that <laughs> they're about to be exposed to once they get out of here. They know, I always have to tell parents saying this child knows you at your core. They can feel your love for you, their your love for them from from within, um, without you telling them, good job, you know, <laughs> or here's a <this> skittle,' <laughs> or uh, what do you want to work for? Right? They haven't e- experienced any of that. They haven't experienced the judgment of grandma or mother-in-law, uh, they haven't experienced the pink bows and the and the whatever it is that you feel like you're going to put on them, but they they, they know you here. Mm. You remember that feeling of like, this person is inside of me, growing inside of me, like, and how excited you might be. And then you start finding out things from the doctor. They might be small for gestational age and, or this or that. There might be some issues. We have genetic testing now. Mm. Um, and each of those moments, that is a whole other opportunity for grief processing mm. trauma so mm. i have this idea my son's gonna come to this world and play sports and find me a house you know later and you know say thanks to my mama on tv and this <laughs> conference and you know or i'm gonna watch them on draft day and all these things yeah. and have all these expectations and dr- wishes and hopes and dreams and then just before they meet us the behavior analysts they find out officially that there's a barrier um, that I, not that is impossible. I don't think doctors are out there, you know, crushing dreams, but that there, there is potentially a barrier to these hopes and dreams that I have for this baby. They find that out at the, you know, if they get their de- uh, genetic testing back, right? Or with their anatomy scan that they get at 20 mm. weeks, right? All those are opportunities for grief, right? Or extra joy. Your child's going to be really tall. Some people celebrate that, you know? Mm. Uh, and but right usually for working with children two to three years old, they just found out that this child who, when they were around their cousins, didn't look the same, and so why they asked the doctor about it, officially has some kind of barrier. And this fat child is not talking now that I thought they were supposed to talk, or this child is not doing hmm. the things that I expected them to do, and I was hoping and wishing and dreaming for them, and they're in my belly. Um, and so that's a whole grief process, and we are yeah. at the beginning of that most of the time um when we're working with littles and so least either you're gonna get a mom who's super gung-ho let, let me do all the things okay i gotta i gotta do this guess it's what i'm doing now right um or one that's just so depleted right just not this is unexpected it's an mm-hmm. unexpected event usually i don't think that you know we just unless you know we we all know our our complete genetic profile like go into having children knowing exactly what they're going to be like you know even still you don't know like personality and temperament wise so we're you know we i think we are um we have a huge responsibility at the moment that we need a lot of these parents to just make sure that we are acknowledging at least validating and hearing where they are what was that like for you to hear that there is potentially a barrier to see words on a paper? See hmm. a chart that says this is where my child should be, but this is where they are instead. Right. Hmm. But now I'm gonna come in and tell you everything you have to do you, that you're doing wrong. Hmm. You just fix that and I'll be well.
0: Yeah. Definitely can see how having that knowledge can really help in your early times. Does does now kind of going back to the doula piece? Does uh, does having a doula, you know, lessen the risk for some of this stuff?
2: Or
1: yeah, actually, it does. Um, so that not being heard, um, and not having the birth that you thought you're going to have. Again, nothing's ever going to be perfect, but um, feeling supported and hurt that just alone at any age stage ability level um, is so impactful that having a doula and during your birth and postpartum process (laughs) reduces the likelihood of postpartum depression and anxiety significantly or at least shortens its duration. Hmm. So um, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. It just means that that's not one more thing, right? <laughs> you were supported. Uh, and so there's a lot of doula services out there where it's just pro bono or by grant or um, trying to get Medicaid kind of to cover some of these things. Um, but some people can't afford a doula, I think, um, even though it's super necessary. Mm. Uh, so finding those agencies, um, that have, uh, people who, well, I'm like, a, you have, a. sorry, I'm losing my words, but you have some, um, uh, I have this particular, um, clinic here. It's, it's called an open access clinic. You have some hmm. open access clinics, uh, who focus on these things specifically. There's one out here called abide. Um, and they, specifically are looking at the maternal mortality disparity amongst Black like women um but it takes a little bit of uh, prior knowledge on the part of the birthing person to even know that that's an option hmm. um to even see in the first place and then it takes what on the part of the doula the ability to offer services at a um at a at a cost that it does not take up too much from the from the birthing person. So mm. I really want to add doula services to as many baby gift registries as possible because mm. um for and even like cleaning services, you know, I have a friend who's about to have a baby and, you know, here, I pay for her house to get decleaned. And she's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, never knew that mm. that's what, because, you know, at the baby shower, you're going to get up a whole bunch of stuff. Now we're yep. it? Yep. it needs to be organized and all the things. So, very practical ways to gift those services um, mm. through baby showers. And, um, you know, otherwise, what you would do instead of the mama route, you know, people contributing to some of those things so that, you Can get back to work at six weeks if that's something that you wanted to do, um, without feeling like you had to put your life on hold for a baby and, and all that because you had support, mm. uh, you were able to get your executive functioning back in order after it get, got scrambled up, <laughs> um, after having a baby and all the things because you had the support. So, um, now you can buy that mamaroo or whatever it was. So, mm. um, so yeah, I think it, it could greatly reduce, and not it could, it greatly reduces the chances of both of these, uh, av- uh, increases skills for advocacy for when you do recognize that you have it. I think a lot of people don't even know what's mm. going on. Um, And then how to speak up, better go back to your doctor and say, hey doc, I'm not feeling well. Something's going on, I'm way too irritable. I cannot get myself up out of, this, out of the bed. Um.
0: The third secret word is doula.
1: I am feeling like I'm not gonna make it, and every morning I just wake up thinking like, ah, oh, it's another day. So, being able to 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 speak up for just yourself um, and having support. So most doula's doula's provide pre um, birth services. Basically, we talk to the birthing person during the the pregnancy about what they want, what they're comfortable with. Start teaching them some things about birth day. Mm. Um, and then there's a period where your doula would be on call to help you, uh, you know, for whenever, like a two week period, it's around time call. They would be the ones to help guide, but not, you don't have to listen to anything they say at any moment. Um, mm. How long you labor at home versus go in and all the things. Um, and then they would be there to support you through the birthing process by helping a birthing person through positioning, through um Remembering what they wanted to do in the birth plan, continuously advocating and asking and checking in instead of just doing. Um, making sure that the a lot of hospitals might not like doula's because now they can't just do whatever, right? Mm. Um, sometimes they don't always allow the man; you have to ask. But if, mm. hopefully, they do. Uh, supporting the partner if they're not resting, they you know they're not taking care of themselves. Mm. Making sure they're fed, have water, so they can get through the marathon. Um, encouraging rest between contractions and all of that for everyone uh, and then in the postpartum period doing the postpartum checks is usually part of like a doula package and mm. then my my twin sister is also a doula mm. so um that's her passion area is more the birthing side mine mm. is for the postpartum side because that's where my experience was and she had mm. a different experiences to me that you know i'm sure she'd be glad to share but more in the birthing process even though I had my own, but, um, and mine are more in like my experiences postpartum how mm. they impacted today. So, um, in the postpartum process that could look like night nannying, right? Mm. Uh, it could look like, um, uh, making sure to have coordinated like meals, uh, cleaning services, uh, teaching the parents to that, uh, providing resources for going to a therapist after you had a job mm-hmm. and making time for that, mm. um, staying connected as a as a couple and in relationship, even though you just had a child um helping with managing and organizing the environment so that you can fold this child into your routine and schedule. Um so it doesn't feel so doesn't have to feel so help skelter mm. when the baby comes in. So um that's kind of more my area of passion lies. I'm very much an in home we get in here and help you arrange the, the schedule even though I still struggle with that in my own life. <laughs> but like uh I wish I had a do at every stage and moment in time because sometimes you get you lose your skills and you can't talk in the moments of stress and crisis and you listen can I help draw that out
0: yeah any plans to or are you working at all with your sister
1: oh yeah so um we we, we make a good team um uh, hmm. so she is my, um, my my partner through life, right. Mm-hmm. My womb we call each other our womb buddies, right? So, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Um, so we experienced we've experienced life, birth, life and death together in our own um, side by side as twins. So um, yeah, it's really important that that we work together um, and use our different experience. She's she's a deaf education teacher. Oh, cool and it's been doing it for a really long time nice. and i'm a bcba so we tend to we just have our skills we get to use our yeah our skills in really creative ways
0: super awesome one last thing i just uh you mentioned you're working you've got your you became a doula in 2021 and then you're working on this what was it perinatal mental health what's that so,
1: perinatal mental health um certification is just understanding like being certified to baby basically uh, understand what um, medications a pregnant person can take or how to support them it's i can't really use it right because i'm not like a midwife or anything Mm -hmm. it's for educational purposes and just to add like a list but um so like a a midwife would use this to be able to help prescribe some things or a doctor would or even a Therapists like mental health therapists get these certifications so they could um, be aware of the drug interactions, Mm, gotcha, um, all the different things that are going on. And so, even just in learning, and uh, I took the training course, and I have to take an exam and all those, you learn there's so much more to each human person that we just do not consider. Oh, my goodness. Mm. So many variables. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So many variables. And you're like, wow, all that, and so, um, yeah, it's it can be overwhelming. Um, yeah. knowledge.
2: Yeah.
0: That. Wow. So, uh, what's uh, what's the future looking like for Trisha?
1: I think I am just every day trusting. God's leadership <laughs> and mm. it, so far it has um, I, you know me listening and following whatever path I feel led down um, has hopefully impacted you know others and helped me serve you know what I feel like is my purpose to love uh, so on a practical sense that was real flowery but um, <laughs> it, I would love to just uh Hopefully expand my practice and maybe model my my practice model is very right now. I just I, I do some contract work to insert clients individually mm. um, via telehealth, but um, I also want to do, be able to through my uh, business um, look at it, uh, try to get it um, turned into a nonprofit so I can get some grants and start helping more moms, more parents. Nice. Um, so that's the that. whole area, that you know, would be, again, I got to use my, my skills and abilities to just dig into new things, grant writing and all of that. Um, and if you have any connections in that area, let me know, Yeah. but also just so that I can, so many people need, um, the service, especially a doula at any stage, uh, that don't have it. But then as far as behavior analysis, uh, goes, I have a practice, but maybe, you know, so expanding that and kind of uh, training other, behavior analysts um, in these topics yeah, uh, and in their practice and practice philosophies so that the work that are awesome. doing is, is, is impactful.
0: Yeah. No, that'd be really cool. And I like the nonprofit idea because you talked about sort of, you know, especially like supporting black moms and imagine you said doulas can be expensive. And so, you know, access to doulas may be even less for you know african-american moms versus others right and so if you can provide those services without them having to to pay for them that'd be huge
1: fantastic it would be really huge and i think that we could even like in that education and as a doula educating moms on what it's possible not to scare them, but just if their child is born with a disability. That's not such a surprise, mm. um, and that they already have know what to do. Like we're getting a lot of late diagnoses lately. Yeah. Um. Just kind of making them aware of all the different things, what to do. Maybe not aware of the different things, but just what to do if,
2: um,
1: yeah. uh, during that stage, and that way we can be helping folks um as soon as we can, you know. Yeah. Um. And. Yeah, that that's just really, really the the goal. I do have a shameless plug that I want to make. Um, Please, I'm, work- I'm working with a company called Shape Our Village. Um, oh yeah, for just for for compassionate parent training um, resource. Cool. Uh, it's it's like a a web based uh, program for parents to be able to
2: um,
1: access and uh, BCBA's to be able to walk. Parents through uh, some compassionate questioning and oh, nice. learning a little more, um, using um, you know principles that are like are used in act and um, just compassionate service model. Hmm. So uh, and it's just like through modules and things like that, and it's new, but also uh, there's a lot of uh, of ways that it can be impactful for um, those of us practitioners who don't really know where to start Mm. in being compassionate and questions do I ask and how do I follow up (laughs) and Mm. all those things. And and so I really, you know, hope that not just through Shape Our Village, but through speaking more about parent training, that we can kind of Mm. reprioritize that 97156 code uh, Mm. that is really, really underutilized so that we can better impact this child that we're working with
0: how do folks find shape our village
1: uh they can just shapeourvillage.com www.shapeourvillage.com
0: wow trache i learned so much today so much and i can only imagine the stuff others are going to learn when they listen and so much amazing you're doing such great stuff
1: i appreciate that it means a lot (laughs) i feel like i'm surviving out here
2: yeah well thanks thanks for coming on i hope we can see you again
1: thanks so much ben
2: yeah